Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to uh, this edition of the Once Bitten Podcast. Joining us today is Reed Womack, who um, is currently employed in Bitcoin, found a dream role at uh, Swan Bitcoin and um, really loving, loving life over there, which we get into. Reed is such a happy, optimistic young man, and it was great to have him, him on this show. And um, I hope you feel the optimism that, uh, that he brings to, to all of his interviews. Um, he challenges a narrative in this, which, uh, you know, the, the scarcity and infinity um, narrative, which, is an interesting one. It's going to get you thinking. And um, yeah, we get down some some other very interesting rabbit holes, uh, like his decision earlier in life to become a monk um, and whether that did or didn't work out for him. So, you know, go go check it out. Um, there's lots lots of ground we cover. I think you're going to have some laughs and, uh, and uh, you know, this is a great relaxed conversation. So I enjoyed it very much. Thanks, Reid, for coming on. Thanks for, um, you know, sharing your passion and everything you are doing at Swan and in your own personal life to spread the uh, the message of Bitcoin. Um, before we get into it, guys, coinfloor.co.uk forward slash bitten, go start stacking some sats. And if you're in the US, go check out swanbitcoin.com forward slash read go use my boys read um his his uh, affiliate link and um start stacking some stats over there as well let's get into it thanks so much everybody for listening and um yeah let's go Hey guys, welcome to this week's edition of Once Bitten. And joining us today is uh, Reed Womack, who is uh, currently working at Swan Bitcoin. Um, I've loved listening to some of Reed's previous podcasts. Brings a lot of passion, optimism, and joy to uh, all of his um, interviews. So, Reed, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's it's a, my pleasure to be here. So Lauren's going to lead off with the first question. I'm going to lead her up to it though because I, I remember it, Daddy. You do? Yeah, okay. This well, time I I do. I shall sit back and sip my beer. You don't want any context for the listeners. You just want to go straight into it. Uh, okay. Yeah, I think you should do the context. Okay. Otherwise, they'll be like, "What the hell is she talking about?" I was telling her about the article that I read um, that you that you've written about. Um, uh, like Zen Buddhism and, and Bitcoin and uh, infinity and, and things like that. And so Lauren has a question around that. Uh, yeah. Why did you want to become a, a Buddhist? <laughs> or a monk? A monk, yeah. That's a great a monk question. Or a Buddhist, yeah. Um, why did you want to become a monk? I think that like all people, uh, I'm interested in being happy and uh, some of the nice or some of the happiest people that I ever met were Buddhists. And so I thought that they had figured something out somewhere along the lines. 
And so I, I started reading some, some Buddhism and talking to more Buddhists and, um, yeah, and, and found that a lot of their tips and tricks did help make me happier or, or were things that I was already doing and they, they just sort of codified them or, or, uh, gave them a framework. Um, but, but really it was just the sort of the search for happiness. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. If I could switch the question back to you, who are some of the happiest people you know, Lauren? Uh, first of all, Daddy, because he's doing his podcast. <laughs> I'm very happy when I'm podcasting. Yes. yes. <laughs> um, Samuel, when he annoys us and there we go, attack him. He's that makes laughing. him happy? He's laughing like <laughs> hell. Okay. I'm not sure that that jives with Buddhism. Like he annoyed Caitlin and they, they, he just went up laughing. Okay. I got a question for you. What, you um, question what countries have you, what countries do you like um, think about um, when you think about uh, like Buddhism? And if um, like uh, these are the guys that wear like the orange robes. I know. I know. You do? Right, yes, okay. I know. I've seen them before, Daddy. I've seen them before. But where were you when you saw them? Do you remember? Isn't it Asia? Yeah. Oh, good guess. <laughs> Asia's a big place. <laughs> Do you remember which countries in Asia? No, but I remember when we were going in temples. It, that's right, in temples. In yeah. Thailand and Cambodia. That was in Cambodia with those guys. Yeah, that was incredible. Yeah. Oh, and was that when Samuel said, Oh, look, then we have to fix the um the pyramids, whatever they're called? They weren't pyramids, but yes, that's yeah. He he was a bit upset that they were it, all broken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, is that appropriate or someone will kill me? No, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> Do you have any more questions for Reed? Okay, I've asked this question before, but when did you um, um, get into Bitcoin? I'm actually relatively new to Bitcoin. Um, so any listeners out there who are, you know, either just getting into it or you know, only, only have two years of experience, um, know that, that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm roughly in the same boat. I first really heard about it in 2014, but didn't pay any attention. Um, and then I spent about four years out in the woods doing wilderness therapy and just totally missed the 2017 run up. Um, and then it wasn't really until the fall of 2018, uh, when I started looking back into it again, my brother that that Thanksgiving, I remember my brother had bought a little bit of coin or a little bit of Bitcoin on Coinbase years ago, and he was seeing the price drop that fall, and asked me uh, whether I sh- whether he should sell it. And I read one article and told him absolutely sell it. This thing has nothing backing it. And then uh, that. Christmas or that that uh, December, I actually went and studied up a bunch. And then at Christmas, a month later, when I went back to see him, I like grabbed him by the shoulders and was like, "I really hope you didn't take my advice. <laughs> there is something backing Bitcoin. Um, I hope you didn't sell it. Uh, and if anything, you should buy some more." Um, and so it, it wasn't really until Christmas 2018 uh, that I really got into it. And then really, really got into it in that spring. 
um, when I sort of let go of pursuing altcoins um, and really started to understand the potential, the long-term potential, not just for the price appreciation of Bitcoin, but also sort of the cultural and economic and political consequences. Perfect. Okay. Do you know one? Do you know what an altcoin is? Mm, no. Good. Interview over. Say goodbye to Reed. What? That's all you do. You don't. <laughs> that's that's all you need to know. There is no <laughs> right, Reed. Reed's going to back me up on that one. <laughs> there are a way to gamble. If you like gambling, you should get into oh. altcoins. If you don't like gambling, don't pay any attention to them. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's gambling? I don't really know how to explain. Good. It Definitely like- interview over. So say goodnight to Reed. <laughs> um, okay. Bye. So, um, pretty new, huh, mate? Like that, that. This is what um, what I love about like listening to your your podcast interviews recently. Um, with with Brady and John were the ones that I I caught. I'm not sure how many others you've done, but um, yeah, it's really refreshing. To, to hear of new people coming into the space and their take on it and what's brought them here and the, you know, what's resonating with you straight away. Um, and that's, that's what I want to get into with you because, I mean, you're, you're two feet deep, right? You're already working for a Bitcoin company. You, you've, um, you're living the dream, like, you know, new to the space, um, Working, working for a Bitcoin-only company. I am indeed. Working, yeah. Um, writing articles, yeah, contributing yeah, to the space. Writing articles. Uh, just incredible. <laughs> uh, just incredible. Yeah, I feel, I feel incredibly Thank lucky you. to work so, for the company that I do work for. I really like my job. I really like the people I work with, and I like our mission a lot. Um, so it, it's, it's a joy to wake up every day and have your, my job be thinking about Bitcoin and helping explain Bitcoin to other people or fix any issues that are arising for them. And, you know, from reading your piece and, again, listening to some of your other articles, um, clearly what's resonating with you is this kind of Zen side of, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were on the path, I, I believe, to become um, a monastic. Is that, is that correct? Like a, a, a monk? All right, man, there's a rabbit hole we've got to go down. Like, you know, can you back us up and give us that kind of round out that story for us? I mean, how on earth does a young man suddenly decide, right, celibacy celibacy seems legit. Like, you know, let's go down that road. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question because particularly in the West, not many people uh, think of becoming monastics, even even within sort of the Christian tradition, it's much more minor than it is uh, is in Asia in the Buddhist tradition, um, and so it's very niche, a very very niche uh, community of people that p- pursue Buddhism in the U.S., especially monastic Buddhism. Um, you know, there are a lot more sort of lay people practitioners, um, but yeah, it, I, I guess it sort of started. Oh man, started back. Probably the, the seeds were planted in middle school and high school when I actually had the, started studying Chinese and um, got the chance to go to China uh, in high school. And that was sort of a, a crazy mind-opening experience to see how a whole other culture operates and a much more like holistic and sort of family-oriented culture um, 
works. And that was sort of in the back of my head um, through college when I studied, studied other things. Um, but then at the end of co- college, sort of realized that my whole education had really been in reductionist scientific method thinking. And I had this feeling that I was missing something. Um, that I'd studied the scientific method you know, as a science major for 16 years, essentially, breaking things down um, into their residual parts and never had studied any sort of holistic ways of knowing or intuitive ways of knowing. And so that started me on a, a journey into um, personally studying some Buddhism, um, meditating every day, reading a lot of books, um, and and through the course of that, as I just read more and more and more, I got the sense that's, that all or most of the people writing the wisest words were monastics. You know, that's that's not true of all the books I read, but in general, the the most prestigious Buddhists were all monastics. <laughs> there are, there are now more and more lay practitioners who are writing books on Buddhism. Um, but like a lot of the original works um, are written by monastics and there's just so much joy and wisdom in those books. And, and that was a bit of inspiration for me um, to see how happy these people were and how wise they were. And, and sort of think that, that if I could just follow in their footsteps by becoming a monastic, I would be able to be as happy and as wise <laughs> as those people writing, uh, writing, writing the Buddhist books. Um, so then I started going to meditation retreats and started going to monasteries and, uh, and, you know, swung on that journey, swung from being convinced that monastic life was the only way you could achieve freedom and liberation and joy, um, all the way over to sort of the other side, which is realizing that, um, sort of more where I am in the pre now with my views, realizing that uh, joy and wisdom and peace are found in the present moment anywhere. And um, it doesn't matter whether you're a monastic or not a monastic. Um, As long as you're sort of living in the present moment, you can be happy. Um, And so it's looking at looking at happiness less as this journey toward the wisdom that you can achieve in, uh, in monasticism and looking at more as just the, the present state that you can cultivate cultivate and choose to live if you wish. And that's sort of the, the current state I'm in now and the current worldview I'm in now, um, less interested in, in pursuing happiness or viewing happiness or enlightenment as some end state that I'm working towards and more interested in recognizing the inherent, your, your, in, your ability to, to live happiness in the present moment regardless of where you are. Damn, man. So you, you're not here for number go up. <laughs> so uh, again, this is, this is the Buddhist, the present moment cultivation side of me. And then the other side of me, you know, as, as is the case for all people, thinks about the future, thinks about the past, is constantly drawn away from the simplicity of the present moment into these much more complex ideas. Um, so, <laughs> so sometimes I'm not here for number go up, you know, sometimes when I'm meditating, absolutely not. And then other times I just am so bullish and so excited about potential for Bitcoin to improve both my life, but, but also the world. Um, 
and yeah, and, and uh, those two, those two worldviews, really the the Bitcoin worldview of look, thinking about the future, thinking about how things can get better, um, thinking about with hope for what's to come. Um, that doesn't always speak with the present moment <laughs> because uh, the present moment in the present moment, everything's perfect as it is already. And there's no need to sort of chase after anything to come in the future. And so those are the two sides of me that I'm, I'm trying to, you know, I'm oscillating between trying to figure out how they work together, speak together. Um, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, but <laughs> that, those are the two things that I, I care about right now, I guess. Can you be Zen when you're on Bitcoin Twitter and like oh. the price is pumping? <laughs> so, so this is a, a good question. Good question. Because a lot of times people people misconstrue Zen as being just a um, an, as being a synonym for calm, uh, which is not actually true. If you look back and read a bunch of a bunch of Zen Buddhist works, oftentimes they're very stern. Uh, they can be very, very happy. Uh, they can be detached. They, they can, you know, there's a whole range of emotions. Um, and and so, so, like, a calm disconnect is just one aspect of Zen. And, and it's not really the, the only thing, <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> I think in the West, we, we view Zen as, as being, like, an emotion or, like, an emotional state really. Um, but like those emotional states come and go and no matter how much you meditate, emotional states continue to come and go. And so being Zen is not, uh, really doesn't, doesn't really just mean being calm all the time. (laughs) Yeah. It's, um, you know, I've, I've tried, I've tried the meditation thing and, uh, like everybody, I guess I, I, I convinced myself I suck at it and I should never go back to it. Um, it's just like this. I think that's the biggest trap newbies fall into. Um, and I've got the Headspace app and, you know, I love Andy Pudicum and what he's done and um, tried to make that a daily habit. But I just keep, you know, making excuses, I guess. It's like noobs learning about Bitcoin. You just keep making excuses. No, I don't have the time to learn about it. I don't have the time. It's just like... What stops us is this just a weird barrier. Um, and how much healthier would we be if, I mean, how hard can it sit, be to sit down and do nothing for 10 minutes in a day and just breathe? It depends on you. <laughs> right? <laughs> for some people, it's very, very hard. Yeah. And, it, and, you know, it used to be very, very hard for me as well um, because you get caught up in those stories of you sucking or this being stupid or, or any sort of story that you attach to the experience that draws you away from the actual experience. And those, those stories still continue to come up as you meditate. They come up less and less as you do it more. Um, but, um, but, but you just end up giving them less, less attention, really. <laughs> they're just stories and they're, they're just sort of a distraction from your experience. Um, and your experience is much, much more enjoyable and much more peaceful than the story that you project onto it of how you suck. <laughs> <laughs> now you've done some like full on, like deep, like uh, week long, ten day long, like silent retreats and and stuff like that. Have you? Yeah, yeah, I've done, I've done seven day and ten day silent retreats. 
And am I right in thinking that one of those would have been at Plum Village uh, in France? Yeah, I, I did Wait. one in Plum Village. Mm-hmm. That's about an hour and a half from where we live. <laughs> it's a magical place. If you, if you ever get a chance to go there, it, it is a very peaceful and, and happy place. So I encourage it. I encourage it. <laughs> so how does one, like, not say anything for 10 days? Or am I, is that just like uh, just a stupid thing to ask? Is that how it is? That like, how it, could, you give us, could you give us a play-by-play? Like, there's probably plenty of listeners thinking, how on earth could a human being do that? Um, is it that? Like, you turn up and you literally say nothing to another human being for 10 days straight? Yeah, yeah. And it, some, some are much stricter than others. You know, in, in many, right. many uh, silent meditation retreats, you can sort of speak to your, um, you, you may have chores and you have to sort of like tell somebody, you know, you missed a spot over there on the floor <laughs> or something. And so you have like 20 minutes during a day when you're, you're doing tasks um, where you can speak. Uh, one I went to, you didn't speak at all, except... Uh, you answered a few questions from the teacher. You said yes or no from the teacher. <laughs> and then, and then a, another one I went to, um, you know, people would sneak off together and ha- hold little private conversations. Um, and so it, it really varies the range of how strict you wish to take it. And the first one that I did was incredibly strict and I didn't speak for, I, yeah, didn't really speak for 10 days. <laughs> But uh, ended up speaking to myself a lot, you know, in my head. <laughs> so you get to know yourself pretty well, uh, or at least some aspects of yourself pretty well. And when you come out of that, like, do, do, do you not stop yabbering when you see another human being? Or are you just like kind of, what, what's the... <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. The transition out of silent meditation retreats um, can be very challenging especially if you go get particularly deep into your meditation practice, then moving back into your daily life is even more jarring (laughs) and particularly jarring. And and oftentimes, at least with me, I found that I swing very hard towards the incredibly social side. Um, And so I'm, I'm staying up into all hours of the night telling people about my life or telling people about how great meditation is. Um, and so after a 10 day silent retreat, you know, the next five days, I pretty much can't shut up talking. <laughs> and then it, then it sort of goes back, uh, life returns somewhat to normal, um, after, you know, five, to six days out of the retreat. <laughs> so you're on this path then you, you, you were thinking, right, this is, this is for me. I'm going to become, when you say I'm going to become a monastic, does that mean you will become a monk? And uh, have I got that correct? Yeah, yeah. And that would have been that would have been the orange robes and like uh, zero um, possessions. Uh, the robe color is dependent on which sect you're in. So uh, my my robes would have been brown, <laughs> and uh, the okay. possessions that also somewhat depends on uh, the monastery you're in because clearly. Um, if you have robes, <laughs> those are, those are yours. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're not like sharing robes with people. Um, and so most monasteries, uh, actually pretty much all monasteries have, or monks have some possessions. Um, the, the most strict just have robes and a begging bowl. Um, and then the more loose, uh, 
sects of Buddhism have. The monks have computers and phones and um, multiple pairs of shoes and workout clothes as well. Um, so it really depends which branch uh, you end up in. Just like just like in Christianity, um, there are many many different levels of strictness. <laughs> the same is true as well in, in monastic Buddhism. Wow. So then when did the U-turn happen? When was it like, ah, you know what? <laughs> yeah, that's Perhaps a good question. It, so out. I I think in the summer of 2017, I um, went on a silent meditation retreat, a very intense one. Um, and coming out of that was convinced I was going, was going to be a monk. Um, and then I actually went and visited the monastery that I'd planned to become a monk in. And so I had 10 days of silence and then flew to France to Plum Village and spent, I think, three weeks in Plum Village. And just around halfway through that, I was sitting and watching the, the happiest monk walk by. And he, his eyes just lit up. Like everywhere he went, he was just smiling and he was, he was fine if he was standing by himself. He was fine if people came up and talked to him. Like, it did not matter what he was doing. He was just always incredibly happy. And I was watching him. And I, I'd been watching him for about a week. I was like, wow, you know, that's, that's what I want to be. That's what I want my life to be like. You know, this 80-year-old man who just couldn't stop smiling. <laughs> like, even when no one was looking, you know? Um, and, and so I watched him for about a week and then at a, you know, after about two weeks, I, I was sitting and, and watching him smile some more and just realized that there wasn't anything actually stopping me from living that out. It's not like I needed to join this monastery and learn his ways. I was, I was seeing him be happy and I could choose to live the exact same sort of, have the exact same sort of presence by just choosing it and choosing uh, to smile and choosing to greet each moment with wonder and awe and joy. And uh, yeah, and it was that, it was that actually realization that, uh, that even the happiest guy in the world that I'd ever seen, um, that I would make myself more miserable by trying to like chase after his happiness than if I just embraced the happiness that I knew was sort of inherent within me already. Um, and then the last week at that monastery was so much fun because, <laughs> because I played chess and played music and played soccer and spoke to that monk and realized that I, you know, I, there was nowhere to get to, essentially. There was no like, way toward happiness. Uh, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, happiness is the way. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. And so you, you come out of there and then um, started um, your, your next journey into the rabbit hole of Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So coming out of that, you know, if you have this life plan that involves going into a monastery <laughs> and you've sort of built this, this idea up for a few years, um, then it's it's hard to track out of that when you, you know after you after you think the, the point of life is to be a monk and achieve enlightenment 
and then you suddenly scratch that idea out and realize that you can be happy in the present moment, all of a sudden you're then sort of wandering and lost, essentially. <laughs> or at least that's what it felt like for me. You know, I, I spent probably about a year or so very lost, very wandering, you know, oftentimes very content, oftentimes like very confused <laughs> um, after that. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and, and then I guess sort of stumbled into Bitcoin and, and this has now provided me uh, some sort of direction and meaning. And it's, it's, I think the difference is it's not a direction where I think that Bitcoin is going to make me happy or that I, if I study it hard enough or try hard enough at it, that you know, I'll achieve happiness through it. Um, that that happiness is, is uh, present, present already. And uh, this is just, uh, I guess, some way to give back to the world. <laughs> sort of how I'm looking at it. <laughs> Man, that's awesome. So you, you said as well that um, you spent some time in the woods. Um, and again, I think uh, I've got a little understanding of what you're doing. You're working with um, uh, troubled teens, uh, or is that the idea that, you know, is it, yeah? Okay. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Because clearly you're a very caring human being. <laughs> so essentially right out of college, I had spent a lot of time climbing and skiing and being outdoors in college. And a lot of my friends went and worked on Wall Street or worked for consulting firms. (laughs) And I, even then, I knew that there was something bullshitty about Wall Street. Like I couldn't put my finger on what it was, but I knew that something wasn't quite right. Um, And I didn't want any, any part of it. Now I have a much better understanding of, sort of or much better framework for why an explanation of why that that felt wall street and all my friends working on wall street felt a little dirty (laughs) and (laughs) fake um but i want i wanted like to live a real life and to work a real job and to work with my body um because i knew you know when i'm 22 i knew that it was about as strong as my body would ever be The, the fewest you know, cricks in my neck, the fewest injuries. And, and so I wanted to take advantage of that and do something with my body. And so I tried to find the hardest job that I could possibly find, both physically and emotionally, <laughs> and found it working in Alaska uh, with really, uh, really high-risk kids or kids coming from incredibly broken homes. So Alaska has like the highest rates of alcoholism, the highest rates of abuse, and an enormous amount of kids living in very rural areas who, if you're born to a very rural area and you have a dysfunctional family, there are not many social networks for you. And so this was, I worked for a program that, that kids opted into um, and they would come down to Southeast Alaska and we would take them out on 60 day canoe trips on the ocean, paddling about eight miles a day, setting up camp every single day and trying occasionally to, to, to do formal therapy. Um, they had a, a workbook to work through, but really um, for most of them, it ended up being sort of a coming of age experience, taking them away from their, their towns in Alaska, a lot of which were so far north, they didn't even have trees and bring them down to a rainforest where it rained pretty much all the time. <laughs> and then teaching them how to stay dry and set up tents and uh, cook food and 
like care for each other and, and, and operate in a, in a little community in the woods. Um, and that job was incredibly hard because the kids coming down, not only did many of them um, not have uh, great personal care skills to begin with, a lot of them were, were kids who had been neglected um, and so who had grown up and had either just been stuck in a basement playing video games all the time um, or had, you know, their parents were always out drinking. And so they had, they had just essentially fought or stolen food to survive um, and bringing those kids down and teaching them honestly, like how to, <laughs> how to keep yourself clean in the woods, how to cook your own food um, and how to like care for your own belongings um, and also how to be nice to each other. Cause, because, uh, in a lot of play, uh, kids, kids are just coming from very, very nasty. The ones that did have sort of social friend groups were coming from very nasty places. Um, particularly the kids coming from Anchorage. So we sort of had two demographics. One was kids from the North tiny towns. Um, and then other, other group of kids were coming from Anchorage, which is, actually a, a pretty in pretty urban nasty inner city life in some areas um on par with detroit on par with you know like midwestern like indianapolis or something like inner inner city gang life essentially um you know some of our kids had come <laughs> and and uh one of one of our kids had um had stolen, had, had hopped the fence, the Alaskan air force field and stolen, um, a massive batch of AR 15s and had sold those to all of his friends. Um, and so, yeah, we were, we were dealing with a wide variety of, of kids, both urban and rural, um, white kids, native Alaskans and yeah. And then bring them into a setting in which they're all uncomfortable and it's raining all the time. And you have eight of them and you have a 12 year old and an 18 year old and the 12 year old only wants to play games. And the 18 year old like wants no, nothing to do with the 12 year old. <laughs> and so the 12 year olds are like running off into the woods and they won't listen to you. And when you say that there are grizzly bears, so they're just running off into the woods and the 18 year olds are like pissed off that we can't actually paddle anywhere. Cause that, because <laughs> the 12 year olds are running, running around crazy. Um, yeah. And then, and then you have kids that, that end up climbing trees, um, you know, threatening, threatening each other, throwing rocks at you, getting in fist fights with each other, you're breaking up fights and cooking food and trying to talk kids down from, from trees and you're 60 miles out in the woods. <laughs> so it was a wild it was a wild two years in alaska for sure i got i wanted the hardest job i could possibly found, find and i i think i found it <laughs> and two years two years was enough for me <laughs> that's way more stressful than sitting on wall street i can guarantee you that <laughs> yeah yeah it is it was it was really really stressful and, and at least at first um, because you own, I owned everything. Anytime something went wrong, um, I thought it was, I sort of thought it was my fault. You know, when kids got in fights, I, I thought that I could have stopped that fight from happening. Um, and it took a lot of, uh, it, it took some time for me to see that, that 
uh, about 80% of the things that went wrong, I couldn't stop and, and I could just focus on the 20% and try and try and make the 20% go really well. But I, I was not going to stop kids from, from calling each other cocksuckers. <laughs> it's just, that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> wow. So now, you know, and now you're in another dream job working, uh, working at Swan. Um, how did that come about? Because I'm sure there are some listeners out there just like, ah, oh, that lucky bastard. How's he got a job working in Bitcoin and, uh, you know, working for a great Bitcoin only company? Um, yeah. Could you talk us through, you know, how that came around? Um, so, yeah, especially when I was first getting in, it's really intimidating to see and listen to all of the people that have been in three years, four years eight years and listen to how articulately they can explain things and how intensely they can shut down <laughs> bad ideas <laughs> and how, how strong they are in their convictions. Um, and that's, that's really motivating. It's also though, as you mentioned earlier in the podcast, really motivating to see the new people coming in um, or people who've come in, just been in for a year or maybe two years. And at least like a year ago when I was first getting in, I looked up to Connor Brown a lot. Because I recognized that he had just just sort of gotten into Bitcoin in 2018, 2017, um, and he was already contributing really thoughtful pieces of writing. And he was about my age, and you know, so I looked up to him a lot. I was like, "Wow, Connor Brown is amazing. <laughs> I want to be like Connor Brown." <laughs> um, but I, I sort of started what after I got into Bitcoin, I. I like everyone just sort of wanted to start evangelizing it um, to anyone I knew. And clearly I, I couldn't do that to random people off the street <laughs> or couldn't do that as easily. And, and so I started with my family and just started talking to my family about Bitcoin, really wanting to, to get them to invest in it and had a, had a number of conversations with my family, called most of my extended family and, and brought it up with them. And then realized that they just, it was going to take a while. It wasn't just going to be a one, one phone call conversation. Like, hey, mom, you should buy, buy this crazy digital asset that <laughs> you think is for drug dealers. <laughs> like, my mom was not going to, to be convinced by one conversation. And, and I realized it was a longer process. And so I started writing a daily newsletter, sending it out to my family. Um, and then after a few weeks, I added some close friends to it. And then after a few weeks after that, um, I sort of opened it up to random people. Um, and it was really that newsletter, which one, uh, taught me a lot about Bitcoin itself. The act of writing forced me to do research, um, and forced me to sort of reorganize my thoughts and articulate things clearly to, to my initial audience, which was purely beginners. Um, and then that newsletter sort of took on a life of its own. Um, and, and now, although my parents are still on the newsletter, um, now my, my interests are not, not nearly as beginner focused as they used to be. And, and so I, every week now I, I write something about Bitcoin, um, whatever is topical for that week. Sometimes it's news related. Sometimes it's a, it's sort of a long form think piece about, scarcity or about sort of, um, you know, this week I'm, I'm writing about 
cities and, and how cities feel the effects of fiat more acutely than rural areas. Um, and that, that body of writing, um, when Swan, when, when Brady posted the job and was, um, or announced that they were looking for someone for customer support, that body of writing really was my resume. Um, because, you know, all my previous work experience on my formal resume, I remember sending him my actual resume and realizing like, Ooh, you know, I've got wilderness therapy jobs. I've got teaching jobs. These are sort of relevant, the teaching jobs. I have no degree in economics. I have no degree in computer science. I have no, no degree in like marketing. You know, really I was a teacher, uh, a teacher, a wilderness guide. Um, and, and so it, it was that body of work that, that was my resume, was that newsletter that was my resume. Um, and yeah, and, and Brady liked my writing and, and you now we interviewed and, and he hired me. And um, so, so for anyone who is interested in, in working in Bitcoin or, or, I mean, I think this applies to any industry um, that you're making a career change, uh, you, you just got to start contributing and, and start writing or start making podcasts or start drawing or, or designing or writing code and contributing to open source projects, not really expecting to get paid. <laughs> like I did not ever in my life imagine that I would work for a Bitcoin company when I first started. It really was so that my parents would buy a little bit of Bitcoin um, so that they would be comfortable in retirement. And uh, yeah, and then, I, then it sort of spiraled from there. Um, so I, I feel really lucky really, really lucky to work for Swan. Um, and advice for anyone who's sort of trying to break into any industry, um, especially Bitcoin, is to just contribute however you can for free <laughs> with few expectations. And, and, uh, and I suspect that in a year or two years or five years, you'll, you'll realize that the work you have put in uh, turns out to be a really good resume for an opportunity that does come along. Do you remember what you did when Brady called you to say you're in? <laughs> uh, ran, ran outside, ran around my apartment, tried to find my girlfriend, <laughs> tell her. <laughs> yeah, it was a good moment. It was a good moment. You know, that was also a Zen moment, you know, running around, beaming, so happy. That could be Zen too. <laughs> <laughs> so Zen isn't just sitting down and breathing. Zen is, uh, you know, feeling that that. No, that it's happens. it's living it's living each moment as it is, which which uh, also you know includes joy. It also includes sadness and and suffering. <laughs> but it's it's stripping away all the stories and just living with the base experience. Um, yeah. <laughs> If we talk about like the um, the piece that you wrote about um, Zen and Bitcoin and uh, Infinity, um, I mean that, that it's a great piece, uh, and you know you make some you make some good analogies in there. Uh, no, some good points. Like uh, it was a few wake ups, and one of those wake ups is you know in the Bitcoin community, we we bandy this word Infinity around, especially like linked with fiat. Mm -hmm. And we're falling into a trap, I think. And I only realized that 
you know, after reading your piece. So do you want to expand on that a little bit and try and help the listeners understand where you're coming from? So that, that piece that I wrote was a bit of a response to some writing that Robert Breedlove has done and Newt Svonholm has done and some ideas that they've touched on and pushing back a little bit on some of their, uh, some of those views, namely that, namely the two things I wanted to push back on were that Bitcoin in some sense represents some uh, novel form of scarcity, that really it's, it's Bitcoin's scarcity and its inherent scarcity that makes it special. Um, and I think that that can be a very compelling so, uh, marketing, but I don't think it's true. <laughs> and so I wanted to sort of point out that, that anything and everything that you can conceptualize is scarce, including Bitcoin. Um, and that that's not really what makes Bitcoin special, is its scarcity. Um, there are many other things that make Bitcoin very special, but uh, the scarcity isn't the, the main thing. Um, can we go down that rabbit hole? Like, like what, what do you mean by like anything that you can conceptualize, <laughs> including Bitcoin? So in, the, in my piece of writing, um, I called accepting scarcity. <laughs> uh, I point out first that if anything physical is inherently scarce, that, that the universe is physically limited in size. It is not infinite. And therefore, all physical objects are scarce. So, so that means both an individual object is scarce, as in, you know, this, uh, <laughs> the, the apartment that I'm currently sitting in, that is a physically defined scarce size. It's not infinite in size. So individually, objects are scarce, physically. And... Mm-hmm. And when you add objects together, then those are also scarce. So there are not infinite apartment buildings on Earth. There are only a certain amount of apartment buildings. And just because it, you know, with apartments, we don't know exactly how many there are, doesn't mean that they're infinite. So, you know, in Bitcoin, we know exactly how many we are. And so we know that it's scarce. And people think, that because we know exactly how many we are, therefore it's the first time scarcity exists. Whereas in reality, everything is scarce. It's just a little bit more difficult to put your finger on (laughs) and prove scarcity because you don't have as clean of numbers as you have with Bitcoin. And so, so things physically are scarce. Individual objects physically are scarce. Groups of objects are scarce. And then the, the piece also then... Uh, moves on to talking about abstract objects also being scarce. So an abstract object is anything you can't physically touch. It's, it's ideas. But ideas are also scarce in that um, the end or, or all mental objects, as we call them in Buddhism, um, must have ends to them. Otherwise, they would, they would lose their meaning. And so if we're trying to communicate, we, we have to use words that have limited meanings to them. And the analogy I gave in that piece of writing 
was if I talk about a cat as a, as a mental construct, or uh, not, not a physical cat, but a mental construct, that must have limits to what it means. Because if I say the word cat, and you're thinking, um, you're thinking toaster oven in your, your head, <laughs> we are never going to be able to communicate. So that the word cat must have, must have some boundaries to what it means. Must mean something like a four-legged animal, you know, small, uh, furry, feline. You know, it, it must have these boundaries. And, it, and it, those boundaries cannot extend into all of the other mental objects that exist. Because otherwise, <laughs> otherwise, we would never be able to communicate <laughs> Um, and, and we would never be able to sort of break the world up, um, which is what mental objects do. It sort of breaks the world into these compartments and that you can then manipulate and rearrange. Um, so that, that piece that I wrote, um, was, yeah, I was sort of trying to do, I guess those, those two things, which were, um, point out that, that Bitcoin itself is not newly or not the only scarce thing. Um, it's not the only scarce physical object and it's, it's also not the only scarce mental object that exists. That, that scarcity is much more fundamental to our existence than people realized. That was sort of <laughs> what I was trying to do with that piece. I mean, you're blowing my mind. It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, no one's gone any deeper than, hey, there's going to be 21 million Bitcoin. That's a scarce asset. You better get some. Yeah. Yeah. And that, but, but, that is a compelling narrative. It's a super compelling narrative. Um, and, and it's true. Like, there are only 21 million. You better get some. That is true. But, but the reason you better get some is not just because there are only 21 million. Um, and I've pushed back on this a little bit with, with some other people um, on Twitter about many other altcoins are also supply capped. <laughs> like pretty much any fork of Bitcoin is scarce and is supply capped. And if you try and fork that fork, you create another coin. But the existing fork, you know, Bitcoin Cash, Bitcoin Gold, BSV, that only is going to have 21 million as well. And so that's inherently scarce. So you can't be too, too convinced that scarcity and scarcity alone is the only reason that Bitcoin uh, will triumph and, and will hold value because there are many, many, <laughs> there are clearly uh, all other forks are scarce. And the point of my piece was that everything else is actually scarce as well. And, and some things are provably scarce with Bitcoin. So it's, it's not the scarcity that gives Bitcoin value. It's much more the game theory aspects that give it value. This is going to become a big talking point. <laughs> um, so j just to kind of like uh, round it out a little bit more, um, you know, just like basic examples for what I have been assuming, you know, like... Grains of sand on a beach, for example, are infinite. You would probably think, um, but yeah, you're 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 shaking your head, and many listeners might be thinking, "No, of course not, you idiot!" But like, there's no way you could ever count them. 
Um, and then, you know, uh, you know, define the beach, you know, is it from the rocks to where the water currently is or when the tide rolls out and exposes hundreds more meters of, um, and how far down do you dig? Uh, to me, that could be a pretty infinite amount of grains of sand. But what you're saying is the grains of sand on that beach, hypothetically, we're talking about are scarce. Yeah, the, the grains of sand are absolutely scarce, as are the atoms in the universe. And, and any time you sort of get caught in that, that mode of thinking, you can always just expand it out to thinking about how many atoms exist in the universe. And there are a certain, there are a limited amount, or how much energy exists in the universe. There is a limited amount, at least according to our understanding and according to, you know, having one universe. <laughs> the, the known universe is limited. And so so any, that, any that, there's nothing infinite? Think like, <laughs> think like, oh my God, you know, grains of sand are infinite. Or I make the, make the point, even money printing. Anytime you think money printing is infinite. I mean, that's a catchy uh -huh. marketing tool. Yeah, Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And I'm not going <laughs> to, it, because it's so catchy and because uh, the number, the money printing is enormous. I'm not really going to push back on, on telling people, actually, the money printing is an infinite. Um because it is so enormously large, it's, it's difficult to, to conceptualize. You know, you could imagine <laughs> having like 10 million people <laughs> who, are all, uh, who are all printing quadrillions of dollars every second. And you run that forward and you're creating an enormous amount of money, but, it, but it's still not infinite. And it, it can't be. <laughs> Like even, even if you add a trillion zeros per second to the amount uh, stored at the Fed, a trillion zeros a second, you're still never going to get to infinity. And so <laughs> you're, you're going to, you know, devalue the dollar very quickly, but you're still <laughs> never going to get to infinity. <laughs> Man, that's a head poke. That's... Um... And that's why I found the piece so so interesting um, because it challenged this perfect marketing tagline that we have for Bitcoin, and it's like, "Fuck, Reed, don't don't fuck with that." <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> pushing back on, on the perfect marketing. The dollars are infinite. Bitcoin is scarce. Therefore, buy Bitcoin. <laughs> right. <laughs> Holy shit. I don't know where, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you are incredibly on that. numerous. You don't have control over dollars. Somebody else is printing dollars for their own benefit. Bitcoin's the hardest money that exists. It's very hard to earn and make Bitcoin. Store your value in Bitcoin. <laughs> not that's, as catchy. That, that sort of logic that's is not, not as nearly catchy. as catchy as. I was going to say, you've got to water that down. <laughs> If you can water that down into like one or two, two or three words, then uh, yeah. But uh, you know, clearly, going back to uh, like the daily newsletter that you were putting out there, this this is like this 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 mind that you've now nurtured, and you know how you see it, it all goes back to you know that fundamental time of writing, and that's why you know Robert and Knut um, do their writing as well, you know, to sharpen their 
their thinking. And um, yeah, you know, I'm indebted to, to everybody in the space that that takes the time and is brave enough to put pen to paper and to share these crazy freaking ideas. Um, because what, how long did you procrastinate before, you know, hitting the send button on that one? <laughs> Took me probably two hours of editing, <laughs> like correcting smalls. Yeah. Two hours of correcting very, very minor words. Um, and, and every time I submit something or send something out into the, the ether into the Twitter sphere, um, or an, a newsletter, it is, it is, uh, a little nerve wracking, you know, cause you never, you never know how people respond to it, whether the Twitter mob will come after you <laughs> for violating, you know, the, the sacred, sacred truths of Bitcoin. I know that, that in my case with that piece, it was, pointing out that Bitcoin isn't special, as special as, as everyone thinks in this one particular way. Um, but but it, it's true for anything I write, and sending it out is, is nerve-wracking. And it's, it's much more nerve-wracking, I think, uh, than filming podcasts. No offense. Because <laughs> at least with a podcast, you always have somebody um, that, that you are constantly sort of interacting with and testing. And if, if you start going you know, wandering off, they can sort of point out, they can push back on you. But with writing, you can go very, very deep down to some some very interesting conclusions that nobody can see. And then you send it out and people are, uh, yeah, you have, you have no feedback mechanism until it's finished <laughs> with writing. <laughs> and you're right. Podcasting, you know, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it, it's easy. I just ask a question and shut up. You know, <laughs> and, uh, like, that's that's all I have to do. But I get exposed to you know people like yourself and everybody else that's come before you, and just so grateful for the time and the knowledge and the you know the um, the interaction with my daughter or my son, whoever is uh, coming on and asking the first question. I, I find it also incredibly humbling um, that. I'm not stopping this. This is this is just this feeds you know this fills my buckets. You know this is uh, you know it's a soul feeder. Yeah, yeah, and I I definitely think you know despite my dig at podcasting <laughs> being somewhat easier than writing, um, it does it does feed the soul. That talking to people, um, talking to people, yeah, gives you something that that talking to yourself on paper doesn't always give. Um, that that writing can be like a lone, a lonely and and challenging, lonely and, and challenging process. Talking to people is not, and and listening with people, listening to people talk is also. Uh, I, I I think that that's also really important um, because it humanizes a lot of the ideas, and so you come to understand that that all these esoteric or um, ideas that people are writing about that there, there is someone real behind it. Um, and that act that for me makes it much easier to connect. Um, and so I, yeah, I love the, uh, love podcasters, <laughs> love the work that you guys do and, and love going on podcasts. <laughs> Don't need to disparage them. <laughs> it's being easier than writing. They're, they're important. And, uh, 
yeah, it's, it's been, it's also been important for my journey to understand Bitcoin, to, to listen to people talk about it. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, it, it comes down to those people. Some people learn in, in different, well, you know, this, you know, working with so many different kids, um, you, you just can't, you, you never be able to tell how that person is best going to learn. Um, and whether that's, you know, watching small movies or long form movies or listening to debates or listening to podcasts or reading, uh, you know, it's, it's so varied. Um, I gotta, you know, do you, do you think, is there a niche in the market, Reed, for you to start um, Bitcoin silent retreat conferences? <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> well, pro- there probably is a niche. I, I'm just not interested in, <laughs> in leading those. Could you imagine? <laughs> you know, Bitcoin you imagine is just so bunch- heady, right? <laughs> it's so logical yeah. and uh, and it's so... Um, it's so intellectual in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And for me, at least Zen meditation and sort of cultivating happiness is not logical and it's, it's not intellectual. It's a lived experience. Um, and so, so you, I'm thinking, you can't I'm intellectualize thinking around it. And as, as soon as you <laughs> sort of really start to intellectualize um, meditation too much, it draws you away from the present moment. So, so there are two things that are very important and uh, I don't think that you can easily bring them together, but <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm clearly trying with, through my writing, but <laughs> I don't want I'm, people like, I'm, sitting I'm, on their butt contemplating Bitcoin for hours and hours and hours. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to envision you, Breedlove, Knut, Brady, Connor, uh, Jan and Corey uh, and Andy sitting around a campfire and John Vallis and Safe all with a big steak each not saying anything for a week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think we would, I would have a very good time. I don't think we would learn that much yeah. about Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way in the world that would be infinite words. <laughs> so uh mate let's um let's ask you the uh the red pill question if you had one red pill left to give to somebody who would that person be and why um my brother i've been working on my brother for yeah, a year and a half now and he he owns some, but does not isn't buying anymore. Um, and yeah, I, I think like a lot of people who've gotten into Bitcoin, family has just become more and more important to me. Um, and so trying to yeah, I I, I would want to just because I've seen how much good Bitcoin's done for me in, in terms of lengthening my time preference and resetting my values. Um, and I would, I just sort of want to share that with the people closest to me. That's come full circle, huh? He's, he's the, he's the guy that first told you about it, right? Unless you've got two brothers. Uh, correct me if I'm he's wrong. the guy that first, first sort of asked me wow. whether he should hold this thing. I said, no, I studied a little bit more. I said, yes, I mean, he's still holding a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, but he's, 
Yeah, not 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 down the rabbit hole at all. <laughs> to him, it's still very much like this speculative investment, like anything else. You know, like any any other stock you would buy. Or um, has he has he listened to any of these episodes that you that you've been on? Do you, do you think um... I've I've shared some with my family? Yeah, um, but he's he is a stubborn fella, and so right. Right. Uh, so. I'm, I'm not actually. Sure. I've shared some with him. I'm, I'm not sure whether he's listened to them. <laughs> I'm yeah, the I younger know. brother. He's the older brother, and so you know, right. growing up, he, I always was like trying to goof around with him and trying to distract him and, <laughs> and uh, trying to get his attention. And so I think he's built up, a, you know, a bit of a protective mechanism of you know, the next, the next crazy idea Reed has. <laughs> It's, I know your pain, man. Um, you know. At time of recording, this will probably be episode 65. And I think my family members on both sides of my family, my, my wife's and my own, and we, you know, we both have two brothers each. Um, zero, zero episodes listened to. And, you know, even with the dangled carrot of, oh, you can listen to your granddaughter for the first 10 minutes or your niece or, you know, uh, like, Nothing like no dice. It's and I, 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 I don't know. I what? And so many of us in the space, so many of us Bitcoiners are facing this down. Like, how do we get our family members to get to the point where you know just buy a little bit, and then you you know? Although in in your case, it, it seems as though like that 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 rabbit hole tumble is taking a very very long time. Um, it's different for everyone. Um, and we're all looking for that answer. You know, how do we bring more friends and family into this? And uh, it's so difficult trying to figure out what is the touch point for your personality type? You know, what 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 can I... And I guess that gets to knowing the person a little bit deeper than we probably do. You know, there is so, yeah, our life is full of like surface relationships uh, and family included. And if we probably knew that person a little bit deeper, we could probably pull out an article or a podcast or something that's just going to nail it first time. Yeah. Yeah. Even, I mean, even my close friends that I, that I, that have read the Bitcoin standard, read the little Bitcoin book that I feel like I've really red pilled. Like even they, you know, when the price drops a lot or it's totally flat for a period of time, you know, they reach out and are like, really, you know, is this thing really going to work at all? And so I think, you know, I've only been in the space two years, really. I feel like I, I, was very rapid in my descent down the rabbit hole. Lucky in that I had a lot of time, um, a lot of time to read Rothbard, Rothbard and Safe's work, and and got exposed to Bitcoin Twitter. But um, at least, it, you know, it, when I started trying to evangelize, I just imagined everyone having pretty much as the same journey I had, where I was like, you know, within a year. They would just be all in <laughs> and convinced that Bitcoin was going to change the world for the better and, you know, not care at all when price dropped and, you know, buy the dip, DCA. I was, I had this imagination that, that that's what my, what happened to my friends and family. 
Um, and it's, it's just a much longer process. Even, even the people that I feel like should be at the point um, where they are DCAing and they're hardcore hodlers based on the articles I've had them read, you know, they're, even they are skeptical. Um, so it's just a longer process, I think, than, than I imagined initially. But I'm, I, I, remain, I, I remain hopeful. <laughs> or I know, I really I know that, that they'll get there eventually, one way or other. <laughs> it may take a lot longer. Um, but, uh, yeah, people will get there. Dare, dare I ask, do, do you have infinite optimism? <laughs> uh, nope. <laughs> it's, it's scarce. Optimism is scarce. It's very large, yeah. though. It is large as fiat money. <laughs> there you go. From, from from the happiest man I've met, uh, you know, even even optimism is is scarce. Um, all right. Last question. Um, can you lift the lid on, give us your day to day. What's it like to work for Swan? What, what's going on? And, um, you know, what's your role? Uh, and how much are you loving life there? <laughs> well, I really like rough life. I, I like my job a lot. Um, people I work with are incredibly smart and also really ethical. Um, and that's motivating to be around. It's super motivating to, to be on a team that pushes each other um, and also has a, a really wholesome goal is to just spread Bitcoin adoption and spread education about Bitcoin. Um, and so in terms of my actual role, um, started off just doing customer support um, about 20 hours a week. <laughs> I was supposed to, according to my contract, but I just couldn't help myself. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I, I just ended up trying to, trying to help out in whatever way I, I could. Um, and so now my role has taken on a, a few more responsibilities, including doing some uh, content creation, um, sort of curating the blog, um, and doing some social media management. Um, and but but I think the core is still customer support. So it it, it started really just handling tickets um, that would come through. Um, but now I'm reaching out to many more channels and trying to connect with people and, and figure out their issues with, um, or their, their issues, concerns, or things they love about Swan and then communicating those back to um, sort of the development team and, and the coders. Um, so it's really fun. I, I get, you know, I've got one foot in <laughs> seeing the back end uh, and then one foot uh, communicating to the front end, uh, communicating to all of our customers. Um, so yeah, spend, spend most of my day interacting with Bitcoiners, teaching people about Bitcoin, creating content about Bitcoin, um, and then fixing any problems that do arise on our platform. Um, and really like life. <laughs> I, I think my girlfriend probably would tell, tell you that I work more than <laughs> work a lot more than 40 hours a week, but, uh, I can't really help myself. Um, so yeah. And, and then, and then at some point during the day, make it outside. Um, so, um, go, go climbing, go hiking, go skiing, go for a run or something. Um, but so do a big morning session, little break afternoon and evening session, 
Um, and pretty much when I'm not not thinking, <laughs> I'm thinking about Bitcoin. And both are great. <laughs> I really enjoy not thinking <laughs> when I meditate. Um, and I also really enjoy thinking about Bitcoin. Yeah, that's that's clear for all to see. Um, mate, it's been so great to get to know you um, after, like I said, listening to you um, on a couple of other podcasts. I knew it'd be great to get you on the show and, and pick your brain and uh, hang out and just, uh, I mean, I'm drinking a few beers. I know it's uh, a little bit uh, early in the day for you over there, but um, one day we'll get to meet, I'm sure, and uh, we can we can do this some real justice. But um, before we sign off, is there anything um, you'd like to ask or anything you'd like uh, to share with the listeners? Where, where can they find you? And um, of course, you have to shield your, your Swan Bitcoin affiliate link to make sure that people are going. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so you can find me on Twitter at Reed Womack, um, R-E-E-D-W-O-M-M-A-C-K. And if you want to sign up for uh, my newsletter, it's called the Bitcoin Buddha. It's about 95% Bitcoin <laughs> and 5% Buddhism, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, you can find the sign-up link on my Twitter. Um, and if you want to start saving Bitcoin, uh, you can sign up at swanbitcoin.com slash and we'll drop $10 of Bitcoin into your account. And if you ever have any issues with, uh, with the platform or any questions or concerns, you can reach out to me either through the support channel, through, uh, through Twitter DMs, or even email my, my email at swan, read at swanbitcoin.com. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> this was a really, really enjoyable conversation. Um, yeah, it, it filled my optimism glass. <laughs> my scarce optimism <laughs> glass <laughs> filled it up with joy. Yes. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> mate it was brilliant thank you so much for coming on and uh, look forward to uh, seeing you again soon absolutely hey guys thank you so much for listening hope you enjoyed that one with Reed. he is definitely a um, a great character to have in the Bitcoin space full of joy full of love full of happiness full of zen full of information full of thoughts full of insights full of knowledge and you know for such a young man to 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 possess all of those attributes and to try and um share that in such a uh, a passionate way uh you know again like he's part of the bitcoin space now and i don't think we're ever going to le- uh, ever lose someone like that and uh, it's just going to keep bringing more and more people into um into the space and uh, more and more companies are going to start and more and more people are going to find um, opportunities to go and work at these places. So it's um, it's just great to see. Again, I just get ever more bullish every time I make one of these interviews and uh, just truly enjoyed my time sitting down with Reed and getting to know him a little bit more and, uh, you know, what's going on in his life, what's been going on in the past. Uh, incredible stories. Um, <laughs> like, it blows your mind. Yeah, I'm going to go be a monk. Oh my God, like, you know, that, that, uh, and now, and now working in Bitcoin. I, I mean, you're sure that, you know, you can draw as many parallels there as, as you like. Uh, that's, um, it's really, it's really cool. And it's great to hear that, um, you know, he started writing and, um, yeah, go check out his, uh, his article 
and uh, and how he is challenging this narrative around um, scarcity and uh, infinity. It's uh, it's really interesting. It gives you something else to think about um, since since we spoke. It, you know, it's been on my mind ever since. So there's something there gnawing away at me, um, which just you know that that the, the pieces of the puzzle haven't haven't clicked there on 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 that particular subject. So um, hmm, you know, we're we're all exposed to so many different little elements of. Um, of this thing we call Bitcoin and uh, you know we all know the, the different rabbit holes that we get summoned into and uh, find ourselves exploring and spending um, lots of time on but uh, you know it's brilliant thanks again as always to those of you who are listening and sharing and reaching out on Twitter thanks for um, for coming on Reed I hope um, hope you listened back to this one and you enjoyed the show it's, it was great having you. Look forward to meeting you in uh, in person one day. Big thanks to um, at Hodler the Now Sir Badminton. You can hear his music in the background. Twenty One Ism. Go check him out. Thanks Obi for supporting the show. Coinfloor.co.uk forward slash Bitten. Go check him. Swanbitcoin.com forward slash Read. Use his link. Go start stacking some sats in the in the US. And uh, thank you, Adam, at Adam Woodham's one for putting all of this together, man. Couldn't do it without you. Um, brilliant shows that, uh, that you produce and put all this together. So uh, big thanks, everyone. Stay humble. Stack sats. Let's look forward to the next show. Take care.